You're listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Is where we'll begin this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll start reading in verse 6 here in just a moment. Um, The Corinthian church, notorious for a lot of problems. It's easy to look at them and to not see ourselves in them. You see, the Corinthian church were faced with some of the same sort of contextual difficulties that we are. They were a people caught between two worlds, really. A a people caught between two cultures. They were living in and immersed in the Corinthian culture, a culture which not only gave a pass to, but celebrated things like arrogance, prestige, prosperity, and divisiveness. And here are these Corinthians who grew up hearing and seeing and reading and watching and totally being immersed in a particular way of thinking. And they met Christ, and they believed in Jesus, and they professed faith in Jesus, which then taught a whole nother way to live, a whole nother way to think, a new way, a narrow way, a beautiful way, a way that seemed very weird to all of their Corinthian friends, to all of their Corinthian families, to all of their Corinthian community that began to observe changes in their lives that just did not make sense. It did not fit in the way they saw and understood the world, their purpose in life, what it meant to live the good life. The primary problem in the Corinthian church was that the church, the the people that is, they, they began to embrace again Corinthian values. And what they did was they tried to to merge their Corinthian values with their Christianity. They, 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 they tried to, to make a version of Christianity which was a Corinthian Christianity, a culturally Corinthian Christianity. So rather than being transformed by the renewing of their mind, they began to be conformed to the mentality of the culture, but they just slapped the name of Christ on top of it. It affected the way they saw themselves, it affected the way they saw church leaders, it affected the way they understood preaching, it affected the way they understood each other. And really for the last several chapters, what Paul's trying to do, he's attempting to bring them back to the center of Christianity, that is, the word of the cross. Because the word of the cross, rightly cherished, stood against what Corinth cherished. And if they could just grasp tightly enough the word of the cross and understand what the word of the cross meant, not only for their salvation, but now for their life here and forever, then the cross would make all the difference. 
So here, at the end of chapter 4, as we've seen him uh, expound on the word of the cross and the work of the Holy Spirit and the nature of the church and the centrality of God's grace for their lives, Paul transitions to a new layer of the argument, which essentially he just sets up a contrast. A contrast between the way they were living their lives and the way Paul himself had lived his life since he came to faith in Christ. As Paul points to their sort of cultural Christianity, what he wants to do is expose what a truly Christ-centered Christianity would look like. And so let's pick up in verse 6. We're going to read all the way down uh, through verse 13, and then we're just going to pause and pray that God would help us understand. Verse 6, Paul says, I, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. For, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you've become kings and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's pray. Father, I pray as Paul confronts and just exposes this kind of culturally Corinthian Christianity that they embraced. Oh God, protect us and open our eyes to the culturally American Christianity that just might stand against a Christ-like Christianity. So Father, I just pray uh, so many of us were, were immersed in a way of thinking like a fish in water. We don't know we're wet. We don't know that, that we're thinking the way that the world thinks, a spiritless world, a world that doesn't exalt the glory of God. And so, Lord, we just pray. Uh, we believe. Help our unbelief. We see, but, Father, help us to see things that we can't see. And we pray that you would use the word to edify us, encourage us, convict us this morning by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brother. It's really 
A remarkable thing when you pause to think about this sentence and how it works in the Christian life and in uh, religious structures. You have Paul the Apostle who planted the church in Corinth. You have Paul the Apostle who has a unique calling from the resurrected Jesus himself. He was brilliant. He was gifted. The Lord had used him and was using him mightily. Yet he says, we have applied these things to ourselves. He is not teaching the Corinthians anything that he himself is not subservient to. Right? Paul is not standing as the authority. Paul is communicating himself to be one who is under a different authority. He's quoted five Old Testament texts thus far in the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. He's been pointing the Corinthians to the cross, to the Holy Spirit of God, to the power of the gospel message. And verse 6 reminds us that these authoritative texts of the Old Testament and what he's writing here in this letter, they were... Paul is not someone who's wielding the authority that he himself has. He is pointing people to an authority that God himself has. Paul and and Apollos are sinners who've become Christians who are applying these difficult things to their own lives and hearts for the sake of, right? He says, for your benefit, I'm trying to live in light of the things that Christ has handed to me. And I've often said in working through sermons with aspiring preachers, young seminary students, that you are not ready to preach the word of God to others until you've successfully preached that word to your own heart. Because that word is not something that goes in your hand to wield as you please, that you might look good in front of a crowd. That word is something that must land on you if you ever expect it to land on them. Now, this is different than the powerful, proficient orators of Corinth that uh, puffed themselves up in the Colosseums or in the marketplace or in the town square. They spoke as if they themselves were the ones to be revered. They themselves were the ones who had the authority that everyone should come and listen to me. Paul, on the other hand, says, we're trying to apply this stuff to us too under the lordship of Jesus. And as they submitted themselves under an authority not their own, their desire was for the Corinthians to do the same. Verse 6 again, they're writing these things, they've applied these things for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. He argues that this letter, I would argue this moment of preaching that I've tried to apply to my heart and mind this week and questioned where, where am I, where's my thinking more like America than it is like the Christ who was crucified for me? Paul says this moment of your reading, I'm saying this moment of this preaching, it's for your benefit that we together might learn how do we not go beyond what God's written for our good, for our benefit. This is one of the the problematic aspects of the Corinthian cultural Christianity was that they were going beyond what God had said. Now, when I say cultural Christianity in this sermon, what I mean is the phenomenon of someone claiming to believe in Christ, while the more influential force in their life is actually the culture they live in. 
So they claim to believe in Christ, but the more influential voice in their lives is the voice of the world that they are feeding themselves with every day. And here's one of the aspects of that kind of cultural Christianity. Truth number one is this. Cultural Christianity goes beyond God's word. It goes beyond God's word. The Corinthians, as we've seen throughout the text thus far, they valued entertaining words, self-esteem boosting words, culturally agreeable, advantageous words. But in their appreciation for all that the world had to say and the way they had to say it, they were not appreciating what God himself had to say. So we see this reoccurring concern from Paul throughout Corinthians. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, that is the world's way, lest the cross be empties of its power. He says the same thing in chapter 2, verse 4. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again in chapter 2, verse 13. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. There's very much a, a war of words happening in the Corinth, isn't there? A war of thoughts, a war of voices, and Paul's pleading with them to heed the right voice, the voice of the God of the universe, rather than the voices of men that seem so popular and powerful. He urges us, the reader, not to go beyond the voice that created the world (laughs) and who wrote true things. For us to read and know. So what does that look like in our lives? What does it look like when cultural Christianity that we are immersed in goes beyond what is written? Well, it looks like this sentence. I know the Bible says, but enter man's wisdom, right? I know what God has said, but fill in the blank. What follows after the but in that sentence is likely man's wisdom who thinks it's best that he go beyond what God has already said it sounds like this I know the Bible tells me to be generous but I know it tells me to be slow to anger but I know it tells me to forgive this person but I know it tells me to seek sexual purity but I know it tells me to love my spouse in a sacrificial way but See, when someone's Christianity becomes cultural Christianity, they begin to live and act and think beyond what is written rather than in response to what is written. They live always in the land beyond the but. (laughs) I know God says, but. The land of self-justifying disobedience beyond what God has said, trusting And what you have said yourself. See, cultural Christianity, what is it? What it is, it's a familiarity with what God has said. But it's a life in which your actions and thinking are governed by what man has said. And besides unbelief, the root of all that, the the root of a life that says, I know what you've said, but the root of that 
is a kind of pride, isn't it? The root of that is a low view of God and a very high view of self. God, you are not that wise in this particular situation. (laughs) You must not understand all the details. You don't know how they hurt me. You don't know how unfair this is. God, you, you, you must not be as wise as you should. I know how to handle this situation. Truth number two, uh, cultural Christianity is rooted in pride, entitlement, and in gratitude. Pride, entitlement, and ingratitude. Verse six, again, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against another. You know, pride is not necessarily something that you wear on your face, although my wife might say I do wear it on my face sometimes. It's not something that you can see It's something that comes out in symptomatic ways. Pride's often made visible by more recognizable symptoms. One of those symptoms being divisiveness. The Corinthians were being divisive by by joining together in little factions or groups which puffed themselves up over against other groups within the church. They apparently were taking joy in reveling in how right they must be and how wrong they must be. How much smarter they must be, how much better their leader was than the other groups who are obviously not as wise as this group, not as sophisticated, not as righteous, not as gifted. And we'll, we'll see that sort of uh, factionalism, that sort of division, that sort of feeling better about self because of how bad or wrong that group is. We'll see that throughout the whole text of 1 Corinthians. It becomes evident in how they settle disputes in chapter 6. How they argue about third-tier issues in chapters 8 and 9. How they arrange themselves when they take the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. How they flaunt their spiritual giftings in chapter 12 and 14. All these issues that Paul addresses comes down to this singular problem. They are puffed up. Seeing themselves in a prideful way. You see, Corinthian culture celebrated the individual who could puff themselves up above the rest. And this is exactly what became normalized in the Corinthian church, a pride that expressed itself in divisiveness and entitlement and ingratitude. Look at verse 7 as he begins to address these things and really press it into the hearts of the readers. He says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. If uh, verse 7 and 8 is an example of what you might call holy sarcasm. (laughs) Paul essentially says, Corinthians, you like rhetoric? You like a turn of a phrase? You like rhetorical questions and and speaking in the marketplaces? Let me give you some rhetoric. Let me ask you some questions. Let me use some of the devices of your favorite teachers. Who sees anything different in you? Now, the anticipated answer is no one. 
What do you have that you did not receive? It's a leading question where the answer is supposed to be nothing. If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Harder question, not a yes or no. What's the answer? Probably you're a sinner. <laughs> probably, probably something's wrong in the mind if you're a person who boasts continually in something you have uh, uh, no responsibility in creating for yourself. It's, it's crazy to boast in something you've been freely given. The questions are powerful. Is there anything different or special about you that led you to receive the grace of God? Think about life itself. Did you earn the fact that you're alive? Or is life itself a gift? Did you earn the ability to think or to breathe that last breath or to walk or to talk? Or are all those things gifts from someone outside of yourself? Is this heartbeat is that something that you earned by your good behavior this morning? Or is that something that was gifted to you? You see, for the Christian, nothing we enjoy in our life was really a creation by us. Because we believe in a God who created everything. Therefore, anything we enjoy is gift. It's grace. It's something we've received. Therefore, there's no grounds for being an arrogant person <laughs> when you're in Christ. No grounds for boasting in anything in this life. No room for taking credit. No room for puffing up self over anyone else. The Corinthian culture had so infiltrated the church that it had become full of people arguing with one another as they sought to be better than the other. And Paul says, you guys think you have it all. You guys think you're rich in all things. You guys think that you're kings. And then Paul says, man, I wish that was true. <laughs> He says, I wish you had it all. I wish you knew it all. I wish you were ruling like kings, because if that were the case, that means we're living in the new heavens and the new earth. That means Jesus has come back. If you guys are sinless, then I wish that was the case, because if that were, if that were the case, that means Jesus has come back, and we're all living sinless, and I'll reign with you. That's the, that's the nature of the argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Already you have all you want. Already you become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign that we might share the rule with you. Basically, Paul says, there's coming a day where, where there is going to be no sin among us. There's coming a day where you won't have to be confessing and repenting all the time. I'm looking forward to that day. But Paul says, today ain't it. Today, we have things to confess to one another. <laughs> Today we're sinners doing life together. Today we need grace. Today we need humility. Today we need unity. We need to think differently about our lives than the culture around us. And verse 9 shifts from the Corinthian cultural version of Christianity to now Paul's example of what his Christianity has looked like since he put faith in Jesus. Truth number three this morning, Christ-like Christianity is countercultural. Christ-like Christianity is countercultural. Now he turns to, this, this is what my life's looked like, and the apostles' lives have looked like. Verse nine, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, 
like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. He says, we've become a a spectacle to the world. Now, a spectacle in ancient Corinth would have been a unique event for the whole city to gather and observe. Something like the gladiator games or a Roman triumph parade where the generals would march into the city. So he's using language when he uses the word exhibited, when he uses the word spectacle. He's using language they would have been familiar with. He's painting the picture of this big moment where Corinth is coming together to celebrate the triumph of this general, bringing it in. Listen to what commentator Gordon Fee says, though. The Roman triumph in which a conquering general staged a splendid parade included not only his armies, but the spoil of war as well. At the very end of the procession were those captives who had been condemned to die in the arena. And in that way, they became a spectacle for all to see. The word picture that Paul's painting is basically uh, this idea of you see yourselves in a different spot in this picture than we see ourselves. The Corinthians identify most closely with that which the culture celebrated. They identified with the powerful general leading the parade in. They identified with the social elites in the royal booth waving and cheering on the events. Paul identified with the guys at the back of the line being strung along ready to be killed in front of the whole Colosseum. Paul identified with the servant, the captive, the one condemned to die. Paul says, you and I have been living very different lives. God exhibited the life and ministry of Paul to be a spectacle. Something strange to the world. Something perhaps even foolish to the world. Christian, our lives to some degree should be strange to our non-believing friends and families and communities. Jesus, our Lord, should affect our lifestyle, decisions, attitudes, demeanor, perseverance through trial in such a way that the watching world looks upon us and says, that's weird. That's not like what is celebrated and what I've known or understood. Stood. Consider your life. Let's just think about your lives right now. Let's think about my life. At what point have you made decisions for the glory of Christ that have caused the watching world to think that you are strange? And let me just provide this warning, warning in the room. If your behavior and your lifestyle is totally explainable to your non-Christian friends and family you might be identifying with a cultural Christianity more than you are a biblical Christianity. If your non-Christian co-workers see how you make decisions and think, that totally makes sense. Why is that the case? Paul explains the phenomenon candidly of why he's such a spectacle in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, he he narrows it down to this. We are fools for Christ's sake. In other words, there's a new priority in town for Paul. A new king, and it's not him. In other words, he forsakes the world's priorities for his life because he wants to live for 
Christ. There's a new dominant thing, person, driving his life and what it means and what the good life is and what's worth it in eternity. Everything that follows, as Paul articulates the hardships that he, he lived through as an apostle, everything that follows flows from this. Man, you might think I'm an idiot, but it's all for Christ's sake. There's something better than what this world offers. I think that, that we can, if we're trying to just understand this long list that follows, I think we can see at least three things that Paul's forsaking because he loves Jesus more than them. Firstly is this, here's a little sub-point. Paul values Christ more than his reputation. Paul values Christ more than his reputation. Look at verse 10. We're fools for Christ's sake. But you're wise in Christ. We're weak. But you're strong. You are held in honor, the places of honor, but we in disrepute. To be foolish, weak, without honor was to be at the very bottom of the social pecking order in Corinth. This would have seen as a life failure. They understood purpose in life to be that of which we climb the social ladder to secure the perception of everybody else that we're wise, strong, and honorable. Paul has sought to be obedient to Jesus in everything so that he is not seen as any of those things in the Corinthian culture. Jesus is better than whatever satisfaction he might have gotten by impressing the people of the culture. Now, we're not exactly like Corinth in the sense that we have these social ladders that are hard to overcome. You're not born in the house of a servant trying to get the, uh, to the place of a diplomat. We're, we're not exactly like that, but at the same time, we somewhat are, right? I mean, isn't our culture built on public image and how many likes or loves or views or follows you have? Our culture says that one of the most pressing goal is to secure for yourself social approval, isn't it? And Paul says, no, I forsake any ounce of reputation. I'll be as foolish as you like for Christ's sake. Secondly, Paul values Christ more than his comforts. Verse 11, he says, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. What he just described was the opposite of the American dream. <laughs> it was no easy task getting the gospel of Jesus Christ to the known world in the first century. I think that oftentimes we read through the book of Acts or we read through the the letters, and we have in mind some sort of vision of Paul's ministry that it was not reality. The mission was not a luxurious one. It was not a comfortable one. It was not an easy one. It was not a fast one. If Paul was to get the good news of Jesus to the places where Christ was not yet named, he was going to have to endure hardships and discomforts that he would have not had to have endured if he had sat comfortably as a Pharisee. We often think of Paul as this majestic theologian hiding in the study, writing powerful letters, debating wisdom speakers in the public square. But this brother was traveling 
in the ancient world with no cars or buses or planes. This brother spent a lot of time walking. This brother had a lot of blisters on his feet. This brother was, was killing and cooking his own food, making his own clothes. He was trying to make a living by, by making tents with his bare hands for barter and trade. How many hours did Paul spend skinning hides and weaving little pieces of leather so that he could trade, to make sure he could eat, so that he could preach? Working long hours with calloused hands, manual labor in Corinth would have been looked down upon. If you're one of those guys that is stacking bricks or building stuff or trading stuff, you're on the lower end because the upper end people, they were the ones dressed very nicely arguing in the town square. And when he rolls up in the town square, he's got bloody hands, (laughs) right? He, He looks beat up a little bit. He's not consumed with Corinthian culture, he's consumed with a Christian counterculture. And if working with his hands every day enables him to both provide for his needs and proclaim the gospel, that's what he's going to do. Paul could have lived a cush life in Jerusalem as a Pharisee, but Christ called him more to that. He called him beyond that. He called him to a mission that was bigger than himself and bigger than his own comfortable uh, lifestyle. It required hard work, long days, mundane tent building, no sense of security, no insurance, no certainty as he traveled from city to city. Paul embraced these things in service to King Jesus. Hunger, thirst, manual labor for the glory of God. He was weird to the culture. And lastly, Paul valued Christ more than even his desire for vindication or fairness. Verse 12 again, we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Along the way, It wasn't just physical struggle that he endured. Some of us are like, bring it, I can handle that. Along the way, it wasn't just financial sacrifices he was making. Some of us are like, bring it, I can handle that. It was also relational. It was also very much social, emotional. He was reviled, persecuted, slandered, treated like he was scum probably the most educated person in the room most of the time, treated like he was an idiot because he was giving his life to a resurrected Messiah. Now, it's one thing to be countercultural in how you spend your money. It's one thing to be countercultural in how you endure hardship, how you work hard for the Lord. It's another thing entirely to be countercultural when you get smacked in the face. It's a different thing to be countercultural when you get spit upon and called a fool. I see it in some of your faces right now. You went. <laughs> you feel it. Everything in you, everything around you says that if you're reviled, you knock that dude's block off, right? If you're slandered, you slander back. Paul is determined not just to proclaim Christ crucified with his words... He's determined to embody Christ crucified with how he responds to everything. 
When he's reviled, he aims to suppress his rage, which was there. Dude's human, right? (laughs) Suppress his rage, his self-righteousness, his entitlement, his desire to pay it back, his desire to get justice. He aims to do what Jesus had done for him. To bless his revilers. To entreat his slanderers. Entreat means to kindly sort of plead with them to come to see the truth. If you want to be Christ-like, if you want to, you want to be a spectacle to the world, if you want to be countercultural, then how do you handle being wronged? How do you respond when you're sinned against? How do you, how do you react when, when you're the righteous one, you've been wronged by the unrighteous ones? Now, the world would say vengeance is yours. The Bible would say it's God's. And the cross of Christ would be seen as the model for how we respond. Right? I mean, this is the story of Christianity. This is why we're Christians. We're Christians because Jesus, who had done nothing wrong, humbled himself before unrighteous people who beat him, mocked him, and crucified him so that he could display his love for them. By taking their curse and consequences. Look at Luke chapter 23, verse 33 with me on the screen. This is why we're Christians, is this historical moment. Verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's Christ of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him saying, This is the king of the Jews. See, here's the reality. The Corinthians were acting like kings when they were not the king. Saying that they were worshiping the true king who humbly submitted himself to a very non-kingly treatment. Christ, the true king, willingly endured the cross for the sake of those who crucified him. And this is the task, Christians. This is what we're called to. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says this, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We were saved by the cross of Christ and biblical Christianity means not only being saved by our faith in the cross, it means living a cross-centered life. The crucified life, the Christ-like life, that even, even to the degree that the world would say, you're a fool. Why are you letting that boss do that to you? Talk to you that way. 
Why do you keep staying when your spouse isn't keeping up their end of the deal? Why, why, do you, why is it you're so patient with that jerk? Christ died for me. <laughs> Nothing I have is anything that I deserve. It's all gift. It's all grace. I'm not here for cultural Christianity. I'm not here to respond like any American would respond. I'm, I'm here to respond like someone who wants to look like Christ responds. We value Christ more than our reputation, more than our comforts, more than our desire for vindication or fairness. We value Christ more than all these things. And why? That sounds like a terrible life. What Paul just described is not my next 10-year goal plan, right? I'm not looking to be hungry this afternoon, much less in my life. I'm not trying to be poor. I'm not trying to be beat up this week. Why in the world would I follow Christ if that's the life that it potentially could lead to? Well, Paul concludes this line of argument before his next transition with these words. Verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. You see, Paul knows the natural inclination of his readers will be to, to be ashamed over what he has written. They, they'll be ashamed of Paul's example. They'd be thinking, why in the world would we follow you? Why would we want to follow your instruction if that's what you're saying life could be like? They, they would be embarrassed by his weakness, embarrassed by his suffering. And Paul clarifies, I'm writing this to you not so that you'd be ashamed, not that you'd be freaked out by this Christian life, but, that, but, but as beloved children... Like a father would write to his son, this is what's actually best for you. Paul's writing, I'm writing to your benefit. I'm writing what's actually best to you. I know it doesn't look like it's best to you, but this is what is best. He's admonishing them to pick up their crosses, become spectacles, partake in the mission, be wronged, because in it, they'll find a closer walk with Jesus, and in Jesus, they'll find true life, abundant life, eternal life. The life he's inviting them into is not bad for them. It's best for them because the cost of following Christ is not worthy of comparison to the reward that we find in a life following Christ. Elsewhere in Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Last truth, truth number four, Christ-like Christianity is eternally worth it. Earlier, Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 2.9. He says, as it's written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, the word of the cross it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. 
Why would we be a spectacle in the world's eyes? Because we're looking forward to another world. (laughs) Another world that's a lot longer than this one. Another world that's a lot better than this one. Where the rewards are far more than we could ask or see or think or imagine. And so in this life, yeah, I'll be hungry. Because I look forward to an eternity where I'll never be hungry again and I will feast on a love beyond my time with my Savior and with all my friends who trusted my Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live Christian lives that are more like Christ and less like the culture we live in. Father, we pray that you would help us to see texts like this in the Word, not as big boogeyman, scary texts that make us fearful of martyrdom or persecution, but may we see this, these texts and see descriptions like this, and may, we, may it do this something in our mind that says, man, if Paul thought that those things were worth enduring, how good is Jesus really? How good are the promises of God really? If someone can, in their joy, turn their back on all the things that the world says is what makes a happy life. Father, we pray more like Christ, less like the culture, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.